Well, it's a delight to be with you. And of course, uh, I'm always encouraged when I'm with Morris and, and discouraged at the same time. Um, I don't know of anyone who just stirs up all the things in me that want to be stirred up and um, in terms of creativity and songs I wish I had written and pretend that I do when he's not around. Just to, Someone said the secret of creativity is concealing your sources. And so... Uh, <laughs> You wrote that song, didn't you? And I just say, does that sound like a song I would write? I would, I knew it. But I just love him so much. And uh, the first record I ever did, um, I had to put a song on it that he wrote from Psalm 5. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Consider my meditation. So there are so many things that, that have touched my life. And, of course, um, I remember being at a meeting once and I was just, I, I, I caught myself staring at someone and um, and I just kept thinking, why am I looking at that person? Would you mind if I move this over? Uh, I like balance in my life. I'm just, just, all right, good, that's better. Good. This reminds me of a church I went to a number of years ago um, when we came in. They had two large cans of spray deodorant sitting, and I was, I was transfixed by that. I just kept looking at the spray deodorant and I said, what is that for? Why do they have that there? And then I saw their worship and uh, how passionate and, and it was, and I realized that they needed that. <laughs> So two waters. But as I was saying, I was staring at this particular person. I kept, and I almost started feeling guilty because it was a woman. And I just said, God, why am I staring at this lady? My wife was with me, and, and I was feeling, okay, I'm going to have to confess something. And, and so I said, but I feel like I know her. And, and I said, but I don't know her. And he says, well, you met her at the throne room. And... Um, it's, it's like there are people that you look and you see and you somehow know, but you don't know why you know them. But it's because in the spirit, you can know things without knowing that you know them. And, and that's the way worship is. Of course, uh, there are people that you meet and, and Clarence leaned over and, and told me when, uh, when our brother said uh, this song that Michael Stampley wrote, I, I, I said to Clarence, I said, I said, Micah didn't write that song. We, been, we were singing that song before. Micah got baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I just kind of figured, well, maybe not before he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, but before Micah knew that there were songs like that that you could sing. And um, and, he, and, and uh, so Clarence said, no, he wrote that song. I said, you mean the guy playing the guitar wrote that song? He said, yeah. And I thought, isn't that great? Because I've been singing that song for years. For a long time, my son-in-law, who really loved God with all of his heart, was a broken man for a number of years, got healed of HIV AIDS and was, was renewed in God. God changed his life before he took him home. And he led many people out of, out of the life of gay activity and 
Many of them have solid, solid lives right now. But he's a, he loved that song, Holiness, Holiness is what I long for. Of course, it's one of the things that he knew desperately he needed in his life. So to meet somebody who wrote a song like that is to say, okay, you've been in the throne room. And of course, that must be where I met you. But it's great, great to be here with you. All of you, thank you, Sheikh, for inviting us to come. And um, for the various ones that we get to meet for the first time, good to see you, Brent. And uh, we need to talk after the service because you owe me a whole lot. I just uh, so I won't, I won't, I won't lay you out here in front of everybody. But man, we got to talk. How do I get to Granbury before I get to your church? So let's talk about that. Amen. Just look at him and say, just say, he's in trouble with the bishop. All right. <laughs> it's great. He's got a wonderful church. I love his heart. And we've been together in some wonderful meetings. And I don't know of anybody who it seems to me is more greedy for the things of God than he is. And um, I love to be with people who are hungry for God and who never get enough. And um, would you pray for me? Didn't I just pray for you? Yeah, but I need you to pray for me again. And uh, I need a word from the Lord. And I gave you a word from the Lord yesterday. Yeah, but I need a word from the Lord. Um, the Bible says daily he loads you with benefits. So if you didn't get your load yesterday, then you're entitled to one today. And if you got loaded up today, then you're still entitled to one tomorrow because it's yesterday. You got your load. Today is a whole different day. So I appreciate God so much and his love for us. Join the hand of somebody next to you, and let's just uh, believe that God has something wonderful in store for us. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, being your children, understanding, and yet not completely understanding how deep is your love, how wide, how vast. Your thoughts concerning us. Your word says, if we were to count them, they would outnumber the sand on the seashores. And when I awake, you're still thinking about us. Thank you for thinking about us, even when we're not thinking about you. We bless you today. We were asked to sing songs or to express something in our heart, and um, I've been through a wonderful season, um, and it's, the reason I say it's a wonderful season is because I'm, I'm on the other side of it. Um, a dear friend of mine, and, and Morris, uh, is a wonderful songwriter, Bible teacher, editor, book writer, musician. He's a, he's a number of things, and um, and during Promise Keepers, we would meet at various places, and we would have our rehearsals. And one morning in uh, in Anaheim, California, the Lord spoke to me, and He said, "Ask Buddy when is he going to get on with the business of serving God's people." And so, I I just went downstairs, and I said. To, Buddy, I said, God told me to ask you, when are you going to get on with the business of serving God's people? 
And he said, what does that mean? I said, all I'm doing is telling you what God said. So it's your question, and I don't have an answer for you. Several years later, uh, they had invited Buddy to, to do the Saturday morning session in which he would teach men how to study the scriptures, how to have a quiet time. And Buddy would take about an hour and lead us through the scriptures and how to have a devotional time and sharing. And it was such a, such a liberating moment. And he's, he's a great, great communicator. And, um, and he began to do that on a regular basis. And, and uh, one day he called me and he said, um, he said, Joseph, he said, I just got fired. I said, you did not. He said, I did. I got fired. I said, you didn't get fired. He said, why, why do you say I didn't get fired? I said, because you didn't get fired. He said, why do I feel like I got fired? I said, because you keep saying I got fired. He said, well, what should I say? I say, say you're in transition. He said, okay, I'm in transition. What does that mean? I said, it means you're fired. And uh, I said, but it just puts a whole different reflection on it. I said, when God shuts the door, he opens the door. And he said, oh, my goodness. He said, another Christian said the same thing to me. And I said, what did he say? He said, when God shuts the door, he opens another door, but it's hell in the hallway. And so I said, I've been in that hallway. And I said, you are where you are because you said something. He said, what did I say? I said, I don't know. You said it. And as we were talking, he said, I know what I said. I said, what did you say? He said, I remember saying to God, Lord, I could do this for the rest of my life if you would let me. Now, the moment he said that, he triggered an activity in God's heart for him. It's like God is waiting for you to say yes to whatever he's put in your heart. And you say, well, I don't know what he's put in my heart. But just say yes and you'll find out. It's amazing. It's tricky. And so he was fired. He got fired. And he said, and what was unusual about it was that he had asked the president of the company that he was working for. He said, my wife and I are thinking about remodeling our house and we're getting ready to take out a loan to remodel. He says, are there any plans for my future here that, that recommend that I not take out this loan? And the president told him with all honesty at that moment, he said, nope. He says, it's going to take the Holy Ghost to move you out of here, buddy. And so Buddy went and took out the loan, started hammering the wall. Two weeks later, he walks in and he says his supervisor wouldn't even look at him. And, um, and that's when he realized, he says, he didn't look at me. He walked in and the guy said to him, we're going to have to let you go. And a story emerged for him. And I said to him, I said, you know what? I said, God's got something for you. He, he, and, and here's the point for us. God is always getting you ready for what he already has ready for you. I said, God is always getting you ready for what he already has ready for you. And so today, Buddy is, he's serving at Saddleback Church, a Southern Baptist church, spirit-filled, baptized in the Holy Ghost guy in a Southern Baptist church that loves God. He's been leading that church in healing services. Some amazing things are taking place in his life. And it's, it's almost as though God said to Buddy, 
Your gifts have so increased by reason of your stewardship that you're now ready for a significant place of ministry. And he serves there. They love him there. And everything that Buddy has ever done over the course of his life prepared him for what he's doing right now. What's God prepared you for? I asked Ezra Holton uh, one year when he was visiting with us, I said, how, how are you and Melissa doing? Melissa is the young lady who grew up in our church, and when he met her, uh, his life changed forever. And I said, how are you doing? He says, we're doing great. He says, you know, Bishop, he said, everything I promised Melissa, I've given her. He said, it's just been great. And I said, Melissa, is that true? She said, it's true. It's true. He said, every morning I wake up and I look at her and I say, I'm sorry. And I said, why do you say that? He said, because I know that sometime during the course of the day, I'm going to mess up. He says, well, I just get sorry out of the way. Start your day with sorry. And we laughed about it. And about two weeks later, I woke up and the Lord says, as you're waking up, why don't you say yes? And I said, well, why would I do that? He said, because at some point today, I'm going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. So just get the yes out of the way. What a wonderful way to live. Get the yes out of the way. Amen. So I said yes to God. A number of years ago, I said yes to God when he said, go back to Pittsburgh. I was living in California at the time. And, and there is no comparison between Pittsburgh and California. Uh, it's dark there. The sun doesn't shine a whole lot or didn't shine. A lot has changed since I've been obeying God. Um, or maybe it's always shining. I just didn't recognize it because of my attitude. But um, when God said go back to Pittsburgh, I was in Pasadena, California, the land of promise, land of sunshine, hills, mountains, ocean, everything that I like about the world was all right there. And then God said, go back to Pittsburgh, hills, valleys, hills, valleys. And I cried because it was like God was taking something from me that he gave me. Went back and God blessed our church. And it was just an amazing thing. And, and um, he said to me, he says, have I ever asked you to do something for me that I didn't do more for you than you did for me? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, then why would I start now doing something different? In all of redemptive history, God has never, he has never failed anyone. Anyone. So why would he break his record on you? It's like, you, are, you think so highly of yourself that, that God's picking on you. Remember years ago, we used to hear people say, pray for me, saints, because I'm going through something nobody's ever gone through. And I said, that, I said, but Corinthians says something different, that there is no temptation come upon you, but such as is common to man. And God will, with the temptation, make a way for you to escape. And then he says this really weird thing, that you might bear it. And I'm sure, how is escaping and bearing? escape, bear it. If I'm bearing it, it doesn't seem like I escaped. But I'm going through something. So we went back to Pittsburgh and planted a church and replanted a church and that church grew. Wonderful things took place. And we had a prophetic word that we were, God was going to give us a piece of land overlooking the city. And um, about two years later, a guy came and he says, I found a piece of land and um, 
He said, I said, is it overlooking the city? I said, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, then I'll go look at it. On the way up the hill to look at it, um, I said to him, I said, how much do they want for it? He says, well, it was just appraised for $800,000. And I said, no problem. And the reason I said no problem is because I didn't have $800,000, and I just refused to let that be a problem to me. And so he said, well, they might sell it for $400,000, no problem, for the same reason. I looked at it, and I said, let's go talk to the owners. And we did. We went to talk to the owners, and uh, I shared with them what we were already doing in our city and how God had blessed us. And they said, Reverend, what kind of offer would you like to make for this building? And I said, I don't want to make any offer at all. I said, I'd like for you to give it to us <laughs> and write it off on your taxes. And he looked at me, really strange, and he asked me this question. He says, may we think about it? Now, he's asking me for permission to let him think about giving me a piece of property that's in a price for $800,000. Did I give him my permission to think about it? You know I did. I said, yes, you may think about it. <laughs> and we left there, and I said to the, the, the guys who went with us, our elders and my wife, I said, we've got this building. And he said, how do you know? I said, listen to what he just said. And two weeks later, he called me and says, we're going to give you the property. And I said, there's a little bit of a problem. While you were thinking about it, we were told that we're going to have to do a, a study that's going to cost us $10,000 just to see if we can build on it. He said, what's the problem? I said, we don't have 10000 I said, would you consider giving us $10,000 so we could pay for the study to see if you can give us the property? And he said, may we think about it? I said, well, you sure may. And, of course, a week later, he says, we're going to give you the money. And so they gave us the money, and we built this building, a beautiful, beautiful building. Morris has been there with us, and we've had a great time. But when we built that building, the day we built it, a prophet, we dedicated it, rather, a prophet stood on our platform, and he said, you've built too small, says the Lord. And I'm, I'm thinking, you're crazy. And he says, this is a youth building. And I said, you're even crazier than I thought. I'm thinking all this. I'm not saying this to him. I'm just thinking in my heart. And I'm just feeling really bugged out because he's saying all this. And so he said, build a larger building. Build a larger building. You're not prophets, prophets. Build a larger Build two songs And I was really, I was really uptight about it. And so in my heart, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll build another building when we get this to pay for it. And we went into two, two years of real difficulty gathering finances. And I said, God, why are we having these challenges? And he said, because you are standing in the river of your prosperity. I said, what does that mean? And he spoke to me at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Put your trust in the Lord, and you will be established. Would you say that? Put your trust in the Lord, and you will be Believe the prophets, and you will prosper. Believe the prophets, and you will prosper. And so there I was, realizing I've messed up. And I, I had this vision of myself standing in this, this riverbed. I'm just standing in the riverbed, and there's all kind of water behind me. But... I'm blocking the water. I'm, I'm a dam. 
and there's some trickling by because we were paying bills and doing like that, but all of the water that was mine, God spoke to me and says, I could have given you all the money you needed to pay it off and all the money you needed to build the next one. He says, but you're standing in the room of prosperity and I could just see myself damming up all of that water behind me. That's why some people call me the damn bishop. So, So that was blocking this stuff. And so I said, God, if you give me another chance, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. And then we got all these prophetic words of people going to give us money and, and prophets. I mean, legitimate, authentic God prophets. They're saying, God's going to give you this. Somebody's going to give you a million dollars. And so I'm believing all of this, this million dollars. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. And I'm seeing prophetic words for people getting fulfilled all around me by the same prophet. And I'm thinking, how do you get in line ahead of me to get your prophet? Prophecy for the love, and I'm still waiting on mine, and I'm the bishop. <laughs> I read a, a, a text at some point, and, and if it sounds to you like I'm wandering, um, and there's just a little bit of that in this, but I'm going someplace. You remember the text here? John is in prison, and just before uh, he loses his head, He says, I need you to go ask Jesus something. Ask him, is he really the one, or should I be looking for another? Because honestly, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I know I'm not going to get out of this jail alive. And so I just need to know because I told people you were the lamb. I said to them that you, and I told, I told my disciples, don't follow me, follow him, go after him. And so they did. And um, so now I'm in prison and I'm hearing that you are, you're hanging out with people that I don't think really ought to represent kingdom fellowship. You, I, I'm just hearing things about you and just, I need to know what's going on. And so Jesus performed some miracles, did some teaching and told his disciples, go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the, the poor have in the gospel preached and blessed is he, is not offended because of me. Offended because of me. And uh, as I was sharing that passage of scripture one day, it was like the Lord just brought home to, to me this reality. Because what I agreed to do for God, it was kind of like God forgot his side of it. So I'm out there. We've got this building going out there. The money comes in and the money doesn't come in. And I'm just struggling with all that and, and I'm in South Africa and I'm raising this question with God because I'm thinking about it all the time and a man by the name of Lionel Peterson met us in a little strange place in South Africa he can't even pronounce the name of it and he began to sing I have not come to ask you for anything except for the privilege to glorify your name. So let my singing and my prayer to you fill you up. 
couldn't find it. Searched all over, couldn't find nobody. I looked high and low, still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater, nobody greater, nobody greater than you. So the scripture says Abraham was looking for a city with foundation whose builder and maker is God. He left looking for the city. The city was in him. And he's looking for that city. So as he is wandering in various places, getting into difficulty, there was a pattern in his life. The first thing that Abraham would do when he would get to a new place is that he would pitch his tent. And the second thing that he would do is he would build an altar. That was his habit. When he moved, tent, altar. Tent, altar. And he learns how to build altars under when it's no duress, when there's no stress related to it. It's like you learn to worship when you don't have a problem. So that when problems come, you can worship spontaneously. You don't have to figure out what's my favorite verse, what's this text, what's this. But you just learn. So when God says to Abraham, it's time for you to do something really drastic. And now here's what it is. I need you to offer your son to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham didn't give, he didn't give a minute's thought to that. The moment God said to him, do it, in Abraham's mind, it's done. It's a fait accompli. So that at that point in Isaac's life, he is what they call a dead man walking. He doesn't know it, but he's a dead man walking. And so as he's walking toward that place where he's to offer him, three days after God speaks to him, they get to Mount Moriah. When Abraham goes up the mountain, he's not looking at the blueprint for building an altar because he's done enough of them, he can do it blindfolded. What is it about worship that we don't really get into until we get into a difficult place? And because we don't do it when we're not under pressure, when we're under pressure, we have to try to figure out, how do I do this? How do I do this? I have not come to ask you for anything. Well, that wasn't my prayer. That song wasn't my song at all. I had come to ask him for a whole lot. Where's the money, God? How are we gonna do this? People ask him, did God tell you to do this? I said, yeah, he told me. Where is he? I said, he's silent. He's silent. God hides sometimes. He'll give you something to do, and then go hide and see if you do it. You don't understand that? Saul. Wait for me. Ten days, I'll be there, and I'll show you how to offer the sacrifice. If Samuel doesn't show up, <coughs> wait. So, oh, Samuel said, "Man, I got to do something. I got to do something." So he starts to he starts to offer the sacrifice. As soon as he starts to offer the sacrifice, Samuel walks up and says, "What are you doing?" He said, "We were here, like you said." And, I, and then here's the, here's the verse that, that absolutely blows my mind. Saul said, "I forced myself." sacrifice. I figured out that sin is forcing yourself to do something that God doesn't want you to do. Worship is I can wait. And in that moment God said to Saul I have found a man for kind. Come on. 
after my own heart. What, what is a man after God's own heart? I mean, I, I took Hebrew and I tried to figure out, well, what does the word after mean? What is this? God, show me. What, is this? what does it mean to be after your own heart? And the only thing I can figure out is this. As you read through the Psalms, here's what you're going to find out about David. He'll say on again and again and again, I waited patiently on the Lord. He knew who he was called to be. He knew what he was called to do. And when his friends would say to him, God has delivered your enemy, saw into your hands, kill him. He can't do that. He can't do that. He can't touch the Lord's anointing. I will not make my kingdom mine by way of overthrowing the guy. I wait on the Lord. And so that's his thing. I waited on the Lord. And he heard my cry. I waited patiently on the Lord. And here's here's this thing. God, I'm waiting patiently on you. Waiting patiently on you. And then what triggered it more than anything else for me was this this prophetic word concerning these buildings and this prophet who told me that someone's gonna give me a million dollars. He gives a prophetic word to my granddaughter and he says, God's going to give you a scholarship, a full ride to an Ivy League school. And she jumps up and she's spinning around and she's so excited about it. And then he says, and you think money's a problem to God. God's going to give you $40,000. And she jumped up and spun around again. And so I was happy for her, I thought. Until she called me and said, Papa, guess what? I said, what? She said, I just got a scholarship to Brown University in Rhode Island. I said, really? She said, full ride, full ride. They're paying for everything, everything. I said, that's it's so exciting, it's so exciting. And uh, she called me about six weeks later. She says, guess what, Pop-Up? She said, what? She says, Ron Brown's foundation offers scholarships to African-American students every year, 12 students, $40,000. $40,000. And I said, man, I'm one of the students. $40,000, yeah. I wasn't as excited as I was about the scholarship. <laughs> because now I'm realizing the same prophet who gave me the word about the million dollars has given her a word about $40,000 and the scholarship. And I'm thinking, hey, <laughs> what am I? John Lipper down here? I mean, come on, God. I'm the bishop. And he says, yeah, you know what kind. All right. So. <laughs> And I said, how, is, how does she leapfrog over a man of God <laughs> to get her prophecy fulfilled? And I'm still standing here. I'm still standing. I got a lot of songs, man, that work through all of that stuff. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm troubled by it. I just said, God, I don't understand this. And then he said, did you see how she responded? I said, yes. And each prophetic word, yes. She didn't wait until she had it in her hand. And I said, no. So she rejoiced in the word? I said, yes, sir. He said, what did you do? Well, you took a vicious posture. to go with me to 1 Samuel 15. On your way there, I want you just to... Someone asked uh, Karl Barth, the great German theologian, what is the most profound thing that you've ever read in scripture or that you've ever heard in your studies of theology? He says, I'll tell you. 
Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And it's like they said, no, 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 Dr. Bart, we're, we're talking about a profound theological insight. See, they were asking for something that happened to, to young theologians who were gathered in the Swiss Alps to discuss the ineluctable modalities of the discipline. And it is said that Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, who do men say that I am? And the brightest one stood up and he says, you are the charisma. You are manifest goodness, manifesting yourself in the midst of conflict and dispensation. And it said that Jesus looked at him and said, I'm what? <laughs> no, Dr. Barr, we went on a profound, no, he says, this is the most profound thing I've ever heard as I studied that Jesus loves me. Let's sing that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to him alone, they are weak, but he is strong, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. When God sent Saul to fulfill a promise that he had made to the Amalekites, that one day he was going to balance the scale more than even, that he would make them pay for what they did to Israel. And so he entrusted that responsibility to Saul to deal with it. And so when Saul got there, rather than utterly destroy everything, he let some things live. And so Samuel came to him and said, did you do what God told you? And he said, yeah, yeah, I did. He said, well, why is all of this here? He said, well, he said, the people. He says, no, no, no. Don't blame the people. He says, you did not do what you were supposed to do. And so Saul kept remonstrating with him that he had done it. And then Samuel, Samuel said this. He says, though you were little in your own eyes, God chose you. Little in your own sight. A number of years ago, uh, I was traveling with uh, Bishop Tudor Bismarck. We were in London, England, and we were being transported by, by a minibus from the hotel where we were staying to this venue where we were. And so uh, we're riding this, in this bus, and uh, it's being driven by, by Jamaicans, guys of West Indian extract. The, the, the worst thing you can ever hear from a Jamaican guy is no problem, man. <laughs> but these guys are ingenious. I mean, things that would stop other people don't stop. Them. So there's a certain part of the city that you can go through 
but you can't go through if you're a bus or a truck and they've got these posts in the middle of the street to keep you from going. But that doesn't stop a Jamaican. And so uh, these Jamaican guys work their way toward the edge of this, over to the, to the left of this post. And so there's one post that's a light post and there's this post that's this one side that, that is designed to keep you out if you're a bus. So he's going through it. And so as he's going through it, I'm looking from my side, and it looks like the mirror of this bus is going to get whacked by this post. And so the driver who's over on this side, he doesn't see this, but his, his co-pilot sees it. And so his co-pilot wants to say to him, I think you think you're in pretty good shape over on your side, but over on our side, it's not that way. And I think you're about to have a collision with this bus, and you're going to lose your mirror. Well, it was so close, and it was so short in time, he didn't have time to say that. So what I heard this guy scream out to the bus driver was, Small up yourself, man! Small up yourself! And I thought, oh, wow, I love that. Small up yourself, man. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard God say that to me when I've been in various settings, and I have been thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. Small up yourself, man. Small up yourself. There's this great passage in Psalm where David says, he sings this song, he says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. When Jesus, when Jesus calls us to follow him, when he looks for examples of worshipers, when there's this controversy among his disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom, the Bible says he took, he took a child, sat him beside him and said, unless you become, unless you become like one of these. And that, that in the kingdom, growing up really isn't growing up, it's growing down. That the older you get, the more childlike, I'm not saying childish, I'm saying the more childlike you all become dependent upon him. It depends. <laughs> on whether you really want to be dependent or not. And there's a moment in your life in which God is saying, look, I want to help you, but I need you to know that you can't do this without me. Can. So when when David writes later, and when I look at David, I think of I think of a consummate worshiper. He he embodies three aspects of the life of Jesus. In fact, there are three major aspects of the life of Jesus. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's king. Saul was scolded, rebuked because he entered into the priestly office. He did something that Samuel said he wasn't authorized to do. Why is it that David can do the same thing and not get rebuked? It's the way he did it. David didn't come after it by way of the Levitical tribe. He comes after it by way of the, of the Melchizedek priesthood, the kingly priesthood. So that when David is offering sacrifices or when he's putting on the linen ephod, he's not behaving like a Levite. He's behaving like Melchizedek. He's, he's Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is functioning in this office. And so he takes the Ark of the Covenant, which for 
which for three months was in the house of Obed-Edom, which had been in the house of someone else for years and years and years, and yet the same kind of blessing that happened to Obed-Edom in 90 days never happened in that house. And when David heard that Obed-Edom's house was blessed because of that ark, he says, okay, we figured out how to get it. And they went up to Obed-Edom's house and says, we've come for the ark. And they said, we knew you were coming sooner or later. No one. And what David was saying, this ark is too big for one little house. He said, and it's too big for a tent, a tent where no one can see it. So I'm going to put it in a place where everybody has access to it. So David would often go and sit in the presence of God. And when God would say things to him that would blow his mind, he would just simply go and sit in the presence of God and he would say, God, who am I? And what is my house that you, you have so honored me? And what is it that you've done in me? What is it that I've done that makes me worthy of what you have said to me? And in Chronicles and in, and in 2 Samuel, David makes this statement. He says, but because you have said it, I have found the courage to pray this prayer. There are things that God has put in you, and you're trying to figure out, what does that mean? Because if you actually believe what God puts in your heart to believe, you have to think of yourself as some kind of ego tripping. Me, God? Me? Prophetic words have been spoken over my life. Years ago, when I had trouble believing them, it was like, God, I can't believe you said that concerning me. You're going to go all over the world. You're going to minister the nations. And I just said, from the projects, the hood, all over the world. And look, here's what I found out about God. If you believe it, he's going to do it. If you don't believe it, he's going to do it anyway. <laughs> so you're standing there and you're just watching God's word unfold. And you're looking at this David and I'm thinking, this David, he's a cool guy. Here's David's secret. David doesn't magnify himself. He doesn't, he doesn't get so hard because last time he did, he got into difficulty. And so he wants to avoid that difficulty for the rest of his life. So David, what do you think about the ineluctable moralities of the visible? He says, I, I compose myself like a weaned child on his mother's person. No nursing baby ever stops suckling and looks up at his mother and says, is the down upper down? <laughs> that just doesn't bother. Just doesn't bother. They just, this nurse, this nurse, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and if you're not there, they will make noise that will get you there. I compose myself, and every now and then I look at some people and I say, you need to small up yourself. You need to small up yourself. Well, I'm the bishop. I'm the apostle of this church. I'm the bishop. I said, oh, you can be all of that, but you need to small up yourself. Because if you don't, then God will do it for you. Why will he do that? Because he knows that that's what's going to take to come into his presence. Gotta get small. Get low. Say, get low. So he's David, he's, this is his song. Look, look, think about, think about Psalm. Here's Psalm's, Psalm's prayer. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, 
yet I am but a little child. Here's a grown man telling God he is but a little child. Then he says this, I do not know how to go out or come in. <laughs> now, O oh Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. Everybody say that. I am but a little child. Say that. I do not know how to go out or come in. He repeats it. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, Pastor asked us earlier, ask for something big. Ask for something big. Pastor Clarence was praying in early morning prayer meeting one day and he says ask for something big make it a big ask <laughs> and I'm telling you that prayer meeting went to a whole different level <laughs> and we've been making big asks you got to put the K on the end of it but here is Solomon he's asking for something big but he's a child he's just simply saying God I'm a child. He's, he's got to be 40, 45 years old when he's praying this prayer. I'm but a child. I'm just a child. See, don't pretend to know a whole lot. Even if you know a whole lot, pretend that you don't know as much as you think you know. Because the truth is, if you don't pretend, he'll let you know that you don't know as much as you think you know. Say, so what what's the answer to that? Hey, just, let's just wait on God and see. Now here's the thing, and what impacts me is this. That prayer must have impressed God. Because God said, I thought you would ask for wealth. I thought you would ask. It's kind of like, hey man, I'm impressed by that prayer. You didn't ask me for wealth. You didn't ask me for the life. This is what you had. God, I'm a child. Just give me wisdom. He says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you wisdom. And on top of that, I'm going to give you wealth too because you didn't ask for it. And here's what I'm discovering, Shake. I'm discovering, find out the prayers that God likes and pray them. Lord, I need wisdom. I need wisdom. See, that's my prayer. Today, that's my prayer. You know what tomorrow my prayer is going to be? I need wisdom. Tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, I need wisdom. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to give me wisdom because James says, if you ask him for wisdom, he will give it to you. How? Liberally. And he won't rebuke you. You asked me for wisdom yesterday, boy. What you asked me? God, today is another day. Now, if you ask him for it, he gives you this wisdom. So you take this childlike posture. Is childlike posture. And one of the secrets, I believe, of incredible worship and incredible life living before Jesus is learning how to play. Somebody said it like this. We don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. So you come into a worship service and you got to understand... Look, the idea of being in God's presence is to be in God's presence and have fun. Just fun. 
Unless, of course, Mikal is watching you. Mikal is the daughter of Saul, who did not have any fun at all. And so she's watching David, and David is having fun in the presence of the Lord. David takes off the ephod, and his bare arms are exposed, and, and he's rejoicing before the Lord. He is working up a sweat, and they've got seven cans of spray deodorant all around the place. And so these guys are going for it. They're going for it. David is dancing before the Lord. How? Come on. How's the Bible say he danced before the Lord with what? All of his might. Say it, please. Now look, when you think about a verse that says David is doing something with all of his might, think about a bear being taken out by David. Think about David grabbing a lion by the beard. When you grab a lion by the beard, Shake Anderson, you are committed. <laughs> you are saying to the lion, you got to go. It's not me or you, it's you. So he's grabbed the lion by the beard and he takes the lion out. He kills Goliath, takes Goliath's head off. He needs a dowry of a hundred Philistines' foreskins. He takes 200 Philistines out. You got to kill a Philistine in order to get his foreskin. I'm just telling you that the reality is here. See? So this is David. So that same intensity that he brings to bear killing, lion killing, giant killing, Philistine killing, he brings that same intensity to his worship. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his mind. Look, what is it about people who will go to a football game and will scream at a walk-off home run? Scream. I mean, just, look, what is it? In, in, in Pittsburgh, we say anybody but Boston, all right? And if we're playing football, anybody but Boston. When Pittsburgh caught that touchdown in the end zone. I saw the face of the Phoenix player and his face. In fact, the camera focused on him and he was saying, oh, no. Larry Fitzgerald, oh, no. Because when Antonio grabbed the ball, caught it, and his toes came down right there inside, our congregation erupted. I mean, it was not like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, no. There was some might. There was chaos in my, my daughter's house. There was chaos. It was, it was incredible. And look, there is something about worship that if you only bring a little piece of yourself, this part of you, God, I just don't do that. I just, no, no. David dances before the Lord. How? With all of his might. Say, with all of his might. He is spinning, he's twirling, and he's dancing. And it's, it's looked like he's a whirling dervish. He's crazy about it. And then when he finishes, he walks home, and he's stinking with sweat, and he's smelling. And his, his wife is waiting for him at the door. And she says, well, look at you. Say, you, who do you think you are? Look at you. How is the king who disported himself before all the maidens? And he just let his arms show and everything. And so she's... She's ridiculing and rebuking him. And he says, he says, well, what's your problem? My father would never have done that. He says, why, well, he's not the king. <laughs> he says, did I offend you? She says, yes. He says, here's the truth. He says, if you think that was overboard, 
you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, I will be even more undignified than this. That's the song. He said, I will be yet even more vile, more vile. And then he says these words. King James says it best. He says, and I will play before the Lord. I will play before the Lord. A lot of translations don't put that word in. And I looked it up in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for play is actually play. If you read Zechariah, children will play in the streets. They will play. That's called playing. Play in the streets. But that word also has another meaning to it. It's like one of those two-edged swords because one side of the word means to play to dance, to rejoice. But then there's another piece of it when that word is is not just play, it means to mock or to scorn or to ridicule. So that when I am worshiping and I'm playing before the Lord and, and certain kinds of ridiculous things are happening in our midst and we're watching all of that unfold and people are looking at us and saying, what is that all about? I said, have you ever seen a rock concert? Have you ever gone to a rock concert where people are diving off the stage and they're sitting on shoulders of everybody, some of them half-dressed, got all kinds of stuff happening to them? And, they're, and then when they, those same people will come to your service on Sunday and we're supposed to restrain ourselves so that it can be secret-sensitive. And I said, man, if you were just screaming Saturday, come and watch me scream Sunday. Come watch me do something. Come watch me celebrate the God who created the universe who can do a whole lot more for me than this. And so I'm out there. Moonwalk. I mean, just whatever it is you want to do, just you're getting into that. So to say, man, what kind of service? We had fun in church. Yeah. Fun in church. And while you were playing before the Lord, he was taking your play. And he was devastating the enemy with what you were offering him so that your sacrifices of play before him become sacrifices of worship in which he binds princes with chains. Your mouths, when you praise God, something happens in the atmosphere. You can't do it, but God can do it with you. He says, look, give me something to work with. And you say, God, here, take this praise, take this song, take this Take this statement, nothing is impossible. So we sing our brother's song and all kinds of things begin to happen. And what what I love most is that what happens beyond your vision while you were playing. While you were playing, I was knocking out a whole kingdom of darkness over in that corner of Granbury. God, were you? Yeah, I was. I would knock out more if you'd play more. See, what is it about us that we don't want to play? Because we're stuck on ourselves. We have this sense that, oh, I will be even more undignified than this. See, now, when the moment you start telling people, you, Bishop, I saw you dancing. Listen, if you watch long enough, you'll see me rolling on the floor. It won't be my first time. I'm on the floor. People say, is the bishop on? Is that the bishop on the floor? Yeah, that's the bishop on the floor. I have a special spot in my church. It's right by my seat, and I spend a lot of time on that in that spot. Sometimes crying. There's a dark spot. They can't get the stain off there. I mean, just like you know, snot leaves a certain stain, and you just can't get rid of it. Just. <laughs> but for me, it's a sacred spot, 
And if I come in there and you're standing in front of my spot, I don't say, uh, this is the bishop's spot, but you just move. I just start just doing like this. Just kind of just. <laughs> until I cleared off my spot. Got you out of the way. Because there are places in God for you. There are places in your life. There are places in this church for certain people that when they get there, they feel something in God they don't feel in other places. It's a sacred spot. And I play there. And kids in our church, they will come up to me and say, Pastor, would you dance with me? I say, yes. The bishop dances? Yeah. But he's not the bishop. He's a kid. See? I have I've composed myself like a wee child. And I'm worshiping. And whenever I don't understand that, whenever, whenever that part gets overwhelmed by the dignitary God just somehow reminds me that's not who you are one of my great fears when we had the gathering of of men in Washington D.C. a million and a half guys there and I was I was so scared God how do you lead how do you lead million and a half guys, a million and a quarter guys in worship. And so I, I, I was on a fast, 40 day fast, and I had just, uh, and I had these visions. I said, God, please do not, do not, do not let me go Toronto on these people while, <laughs> while I'm there. I mean, I just had these moments. Just, I could just see myself before a, a million and a quarter guys. <laughs> <laughs> just like God that would not be so good I know. but when you're hungry for God and you want God to do something you need to give him permission to do it and just simply say the outcome is up to you the outcome is up to you come unto me all you who and are and I will give you rest and Jesus prays and he says Father I thank you for these that you've given me. And he says, for you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them unto, let's say babies. Babes now means something completely different, all right? And I, I know very few babes who've getting revelation right now, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you posture yourself as a babe. And when you can't do that, you find a place where you can do that. And if you've never done it before, and if you say, God, there is something that I need from you, and I don't know what I need. I don't know what I need to do to get it. We walked into the, to the uh, green room, which is not green. Um, and as we're walking in, this, this little boy is crying. He is just crying. He's, and so, and he, he's, he's like he's unconsolable. And so Clarence and I, we go over to him and we, and we help him up onto the chair and he's crying. I mean, big tears coming out of his eyes, man. And I said, what happened? And his friend said, he hit his foot. And so I said, can I pray for it? And I, and I grabbed his foot and I said, is it this one? He said, no. <laughs> you know, now a grown-up would have said, well, any foot will do, you know. But he's a kid. He wants me to know that is not the foot. And if you're exercising discernment, it's not working. And so... 
And so I had a choice. I could either stay with the foot I had or I could go with the one that was hurting. And so I said, may I pray for it? And he said, yeah, you can pray for it. And so I started praying for it. And we're praying for it. And, and he, he somehow began to calm down. And I said, I said, let's say thank you, Jesus. I said, can you say thank you, Jesus? He said, no, I'm not saying thank you, Jesus. I said, well, I'll say it for you. <laughs> but he was a child. And he wasn't afraid to cry. And it didn't matter that grown-ups were watching or it didn't matter his friend. He was, his friend wasn't inviting him to be courageous. I said, what's your name? He said, Simeon. I play drums. I said, I've heard about you. And he got to talking. It was like it's all, all of a sudden he's in a different place. And, and here's, here's God. Joseph, sometimes if you really want something from me, you're going to need to cry. I said, what's up with crying? He said, that's what children do when they really want something. But God, this, is that, is, that, is that hypocritical? No, he says, crying is a decision. You can cry if you want to. Isn't there a song that goes something like that? My mother used to take me up to my uncle's house. My dad died when I was four. And so he gave my uncle the responsibility of whipping us. My uncle was 6'5". He hit for distance. You didn't run because he would take your hands like this in his great big hand and he would hold your hand and it would be like a merry-go-round. And so when my mother said, you're going to get a whipping on Monday, and that was on Sunday. I didn't wait till Sunday to start crying. I started crying when she gave me that information. It's like I, I knew I could cry if I wanted to. Say crying is a decision. And, 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 it's like, and crying isn't just tears. It's your voice. It's when you raise something to God. It's when you become so desperate in God that you say to God, God, I have to have this. I've got to have this. And so this David, who understands what it means to be childlike more than anyone else, and writes these words, I have composed myself like a weaned child resting on his mother's bosom. It's the same David who said, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so I say to worship pastors, I said, every now and then you just need to find a place where you can just go and break your heart. Make yourself cry. Is that hypocritical? I said, no, man. That's desperate. How do you do that? You start with the sounds. And pretty soon something will flow out of that. You see, I've never seen that happen. I saw Jack Hayford do it in front of 1,500 pastors. It's called contrived brokenness. It's, it's, look, it's, it's deciding that there is something that God wants to pour out of you that when you offer him a sacrifice of a broken heart, it's saying to him, I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing till you come. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing till you come. Oh, can't do 
you come. Lift your voice. Make that declaration. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. Till you come. Till you come. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. Till you come. Oh, I can't do nothing. Oh, I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. church a number of years ago he was he's getting ready to speak and um, the spirit of the lord came upon him and he said um, prophesy and so he began to prophesy he said it is time for us to elevate our hearts above our heads it is time to elevate our hearts above our heads for the child is about to be born and if we do not elevate our hearts above our heads we could lose the baby and he said he had never had a word like that before. He couldn't understand what he was saying. It was just like he was prophesying out of, out of the heart of God, revelation. And he said rather than try to figure out what he was prophesying, he just simply went on with this message. And the following morning, the pastor of the church where he was ministering called him and he said, Mark, would you come? He says, my daughter 
is having a difficult birth. She's in the hospital now, and they've told us to come because they don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so would you go with me? And he said, yes. And so he gets to the hospital, and they walk into the, to the room where his daughter is, and she's, she is struggling, and you, and you can see the struggle is real. And, and the, the attendants and the nurses and the medical people there, there's this flurry of activity, and they're trying to find out what's going on. And all of a sudden, the, the doctor the obstetrician rushes into the room and he says, quick, quick, we must do something. The baby's in trouble. And in order to save the baby, you're going to have to elevate your heart above your head. And Mark stood there in shock because he wanted to see, well, how is he going to do that? And this woman who's great with child, he says, you've got to get out of the bed. And so they get her out of the bed and he says, get on your knees. And she's on her knees. And then as she's on her knees, he says, now bend over and put your head on the floor with great difficulty, I imagine. And so she bends over and she puts her head on the floor. And as she does, they recognize that the heart is now beating like it's supposed to. He said, I don't think we should deliver the baby in the usual way, which is another part of Mark's prophetic word. And so they do a cesarean and they realize that the cord had been wrapped around the baby's neck and would not have survived a natural birth. I don't know if you've noticed that in scripture when people are, are broken and in deep difficulty, in almost every case they will come. The classic definition for worship is not singing. The most impressive definition for worship is not even an act in which you raise your voice. It's a posture. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word means to bow. It's to elevate your heart above your head. And when people are in great difficulty, somehow elevating the heart above their head gets an attention that you can't get under normal circumstances. So the Shunammite woman comes to Elisha. And it's not until she elevates her heart above her head when she bows and grabs his feet and says you gotta do something Abraham bows God you gotta do something Mary comes before Jesus and she, she bows she puts her head on the floor and she wash his feet wipes his feet with her, her hair bowing, being broken. It's the, it's the most powerful expression of brokenness. Often before ministry, I'll just go someplace and get on my knees and get my head on the floor and just simply say, God, can't do this without you. Can't do this without you. And sometimes I'll just start to cry. I'll just start to cry. Aren't you too big to cry? Aren't you too old to cry? No, I'm not old enough. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been doing this, there's got to be something in you that just simply says, I've learned how to small up myself and give him the glory. Because I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. I can't do Till you come. Come on and stand with me.
with me. Let's make that confession. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing till you come. Come on, make it a prayer. your hand right here over your heart. Take my heart, conform it. Take my mind. Take my will. So you 
just something he does in public but it's just something that's a part of his life and I believe it's because of his capacity for brokenness and not caring is that what you said I don't care I mean if you don't like the way I worship talk to the hand hmm. but there's something that God wants to do to free us and it, it isn't so much to free us from others as much as it's to free us from ourselves. Because more than anything, I'm not hung up on, on you. I'm hung up on me. And it's, it's taking myself too seriously that gets me into difficulty. And, and at some point, I, I, just, I just say, God, you know what? I got to find a place where... A new place of I don't care what people think. Because promotion will come and God will raise you to a certain place and you say, oh man, I must be pretty special. He says, you are. Now, getting back to the special place that enabled me because I don't, I don't promote those who promote themselves. Those who humble themselves, I exalt. You want new songs? Get down. Get, get your get your heart above your head and let God give you a new sound, a new song. Maybe that maybe that song isn't going to be complicated at all. Maybe it's just a simple phrase. A simple phrase. Learn how to find songs that are pleasing to God, that God loves so much. And as you're singing them, you just say, God, I can't wait for the church to hear that. And he says, that ain't for the church. That's for you and me. That's, that's our song. There, there, there's got to be something that you have with him that he knows you aren't going to. There's, there's some things that I enjoy with my wife that I, I just want to talk to the church about. You know my wife and I, no, 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 she'd kill me. So in, in God, there's got to be some intimate places where, where you can be with him. And, and you can have that with him and, and share that with him and then just say, God, is this a you song or is that a us song? He says, no, that's a you song. That's, that's me and you. That's, that's between us. And so you get happy with that because you're in, the, you're in the secret place. And in the secret place, God can say things to you that you will never hear anywhere else. But the problem with the secret place is that it's always a secret. You just can't get there because you say, where we go? You remember, you remember that there were, there were seasons when God would so anoint a song every time we sang it in the service, he would show up. And we would sing that song, man, our God is greater, our God is hunger. And we'd sing that song, God would come. 
and then the service, some of you hit a, a lag in the service, and we say, hey, let's go to that song. And you go to that song, and you say, come on, let's sing it. And you say, and God never shows up. And you say, except I'm not using that one anymore. So God, what do you mean? He says, the secret place, say it, the secret place is a secret every time. God's not going to give you a key to the secret place so that whenever you're ready to go to the secret place, you go. No, you get there by just simply saying, oh, God, you got to help me, God. you got to help me. I don't know where it is. God. I don't know how to get to God. Please, God, please, God. And all of a sudden, you find yourself there, and you look, and you say, how did I get here? And he won't tell you. And you just know that every time you get there, it's because you express some measure of dependency in that moment that you didn't express in another moment. You can't do nothing till he comes. You can't do it till he comes. Jesus told his disciples, I'll close with this. I've got five closes. I've shared three of them already. Jesus told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've taken three three semesters of Greek, so I'm pretty good with Greek. And so I use my understanding of Greek to look up the meaning of the word nothing. And I found that nothing in the Greek means the same thing it does in English. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But how many of you know that we've done a whole lot apart from him? And I say, well, God, what about this? What about that? He says, what I'm really saying to you is that apart from me, there is nothing that you can do that will have eternal value to it. We can do a lot of stuff. There are a lot of songs that people have written, but it doesn't have an eternal value to it. We used to sing a lot of them in Pentecost. But they, they had no meaning. They, they were not vertical, and they weren't even greatly horizontal. But in the quiet place, God can give you something. Wonderful songs. Songs that transform you. In remembrance of you, we take this breath. I heard that song for the first time. And when I heard it, I just started to bawl. I just said, I've never heard a communion song like that. And I heard it in a church where the musicians are outstanding. And we're all sitting there. And they started, we're going to play. They, they played a tape recorded song of Morris Chapman singing, We Do This in Remembrance of You. And my first response, Pastor Allen, was to say, why would they play a recorded song when Clinton Utterbog is a psalmist extraordinary? And I'm, so I'm just listening there. We do this and remember. And when, when he got finished with that song, I just simply said, yeah, I can see why they did that. Revelation doesn't make sense when you do it. It makes sense after you do it. Why don't you come, Morris? Would you just come and lead us in that song? There are songs that are, I believe are birthed. They're birthed in broken places. And you can't be around Morris without realizing that there are a lot of broken places in his life. And out of each one of those broken places, um, you need a microphone. So it, what Pastor said is that they have communion elements, and uh, I, I saw those things. I just thought you guys normally had them there. So I was being led by the Spirit and didn't know it. 
I love that. That's just like brain dead. Think about Jesus when he says, I long to have this meal with you. So he begins to share that meal with his disciples. And we sat there just like right now. May I have one of those? holding this the cup looked just like this in remembrance of you we take this bread your body broken for us in remembrance of you, we take this cup and remember your blood shed for us, Lord Jesus. And every time we do, we do this in remembrance. Say it with me. We do this in remembrance again. We do this in remembrance of you. Lord, we remember. Lord, we remember.
Sometimes we say to people who are not believers, you can't have this. But people who aren't believers need it more than those who are believers. They need to know that his body was broken for them. And that there's a man by the name of Judas who got a chance to partake of this. There's something that God holds out to unbelievers that the church has withheld from them. This isn't just a call to remember him, but it's to remember the commission that he's given us, that he's given us a message of reconciliation. And that message is real clear, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And so it's a way of saying to the world, God's not mad at you, and here's the evidence. Say, Father, I thank you that you've given your son, not just for me, but for the world. Paul told the Corinthians, this is the cup of communion which we bless. So would you do that right here? Just bless this cup. Father, we thank you for this cup, your life for our life, your blood shed for us, for the remission of sins, for the cleansing of everything. Thank you that this blood, as the psalmist said, reaches to the highest mountain, flows to the lowest valley. There is no one who is out of touch that cannot be touched by this. And so we receive this cup, your life for our life. It reaches to the high. 